At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. This morning we're going to be continuing a sermon series we began last week called King of the Mountain. And in this series, we have seen how Jesus, in the last week of his earthly life, came to the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, a city on a hill. And as Jesus ascended to that city, he went to the highest point of that city, the Temple Mount. And when Jesus arrived there, he engaged in conversation with a number of different leaders of Israel at that time. Last week, it was the chief priests and the elders who talked to him, but also the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians all came and inquired of Jesus. And as they came and interacted with him, they all had a similar mission. And that mission was to somehow discredit Jesus. They were not happy with the movement that he was starting, and they wanted to take him out. And so they ask a series of questions to try to, as we talked about last week, knock him off of the top of the mountain, tip over that raft so that he might be exposed. Now, their intent and their purpose was to discredit Christ. It's very clear from Matthew chapters 21 through 23. That was their intent. But I think there was something else that was going on in those chapters, There was an examination of the sacrifice that Jesus was getting ready to make. Warren Wearsby helps us see this as he compares the events of Matthew 21 through 23 with Exodus chapter 12 and the examination of a Passover lamb. It says Jesus was going to die as the lamb of God, as a sacrifice for our sins. And it was necessary for the lamb to be examined before the Passover, as Exodus 12, 3 to 6 tells us. If any blemish whatsoever was found on the lamb, it could not be sacrificed. Jesus was examined publicly by his enemies, and they could find no fault in him. Friends, the king of kings ascended the mountain. They tried to tip him over, but they were unsuccessful. Last week, we looked at one of the questions that they asked to try to discredit Jesus, and that question related to the authority that he had. Where did it come from? This week, we're going to continue looking at these verses in chapter 22, verses 15 through 22, as we're going to look at another question that is asked of Jesus by the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, this question was devised as a foolproof way to cause division between Jesus and the people. So what would they ask that would almost certainly cause controversy? Well, they were going to weave together a topic that would take two things that often cause division, religion and politics. They were to take those two ideas and blend them together and ask Jesus a question that was almost certain to offend someone. Now, there are a number of ways in which we are separated in time and space from the Scriptures, but can we relate to that? You want to cause division at Thanksgiving? Just walk in with some political comment and just kind of roll it out and then step out and then watch what ensues around your Thanksgiving table. They were certain that they could come up with a question related to politics that would lead to such division that it might discredit Jesus. But as we're going to see today, friends, though they thought they could 
win the argument, Jesus ends up remaining on top as the king of kings, the king of the temple mount. We're going to look at that today in Matthew 22, 15 through 22, in part two of our series. We're going to spend our time there. So if you've got a Bible, you might flip over to Matthew 22. I want to read those seven verses for us, and then we'll back up and see in three movements what I believe God wants us to see this morning from this text. Passage begins in verse 15 and says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true when you teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Friends, in these seven verses, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to organize it in a similar way as we did last week. We're going to look at the question that was asked, and then we're going to look at the two-part answer that Jesus gives. So let's begin with the question. What is the question that is asked of Jesus here? Well, the question is this. Should we pay our taxes? That's really what they're asking. Should we pay our taxes, Jesus? Now, they asked it in a more colorful way than that. They, they said, actually, is it lawful for us to pay tax? In other words, we don't think we should, but is it lawful? Is it possible? Is it ethical for a follower of God to pay tax to Caesar? Now, specifically, the tax that they were asking about was the poll tax. There were a number of different taxes, but the poll tax was one that went straight to Rome. It just was a tax that was on every person, basically, at a census. If you were counted, you were expected to pay this tax. And so they come to Jesus, and they ask him this question. Now, who is the they who came to ask this question? Well, there are two groups of they who came to ask it. Two groups of people that banded together as a team, to go and ask Jesus this question. You see who they are in those verses? The Pharisees and who else? The Herodians. Now, we're tempted, because we look at this, you know, 2,000 years later, we're tempted to look at this and go, you know what, I bet the Pharisees and the Herodians were good buddies. I mean, they're both Bible people. I mean, they probably hung, played at the same country club. They, they probably ate dinner, you know, after services together. They, they probably had their kids in the same school. These were probably friends. They're Bible people, Herodians and Pharisees. But the reality is these were two groups of people who did not get along. Their worldviews were vastly different. And they were especially different on the political issue that was at play here. Now, the Pharisees were a group of people who were separatists. That's what their name actually means. They were separatists. And as it came to a secular government like the Romans that would be 
ruling over them. The Pharisees' strategy was to maintain as best they could the old Jewish way of life. And the old Jewish way of life did not pay tax to Rome, so they didn't want to pay it. That was the Pharisees' perspective on this issue. On the other end, you had the Herodians. The Herodians were not separatists. The Herodians were opportunists. And they saw in the Roman government an opportunity for them to gain some kind of power. And so they felt like if we cooperate with the Romans, if we cooperate with Caesar, then we will gain for ourselves authority and power in the Middle East. And they had done so. You know, if you were to go to Israel today, you would see the ruins of a number of different things that Herod and his sons built all over Israel. And one of the places that they, you would go is in Caesarea Philippi, where you would see the ruins of an altar and a temple that was built to Augustus Caesar by Herod. It was a location inside of Israel for people to worship Caesar as God. That's how connected the Herods were with Caesar. So, of course, they would pay the tax because they wanted to gain the favor of Rome. So you have these two groups of people who don't like each other, don't hang out, and who have very different perspectives on this issue of the poll tax. So why do they team up in this issue? Well, they team up in this issue because they think in this issue they've got a winner. And the winning ticket is that they would discredit Jesus. Because no matter how Jesus would answer this question, they felt like he would be discredited in some way. Because if Jesus answers this question and says, do not pay the poll tax, then he would be agreeing with the Pharisees. But at the same time, at the same time, he would be making himself an enemy of Rome. And revolutionaries of the first century who were outspoken as leading a group of people, and Jesus certainly had a large following, if they were outspoken about not paying this tax, they could be arrested and killed. In AD 6, there was a, a man named Judas of Galilee. This is not the Judas that we read about in the rest of the New Testament, but Judas of Galilee, he was a, a rebel. He had gained a following, and he made a statement that they should not have to pay this poll tax, and the Romans made him pay for that statement with his life. No doubt the Pharisees are thinking, if he says so that, then the Romans will kill him, and they would be happy. But if Jesus were to answer that question and, and say, yeah, you ought to pay the poll tax, well, then the crowd would be upset. The crowd would be incensed because the crowd didn't want to pay that tax, and they thought in Jesus, you know, this Messiah that was going to overthrow Rome, it would not have fit the profile for them for him to say, go ahead and pay this tax. It would have made very unpopular. I've shared this story before, but in 1995, I went to the OU-Texas game as a student at OU. And I'm standing there, sitting there uh, in, in the stadium, and they invite country music star Clay Walker to come out and sing. 
Um, and they make an announcement about Clay Walker. They say, Clay Walker is, was born in Lufkin, Texas, or wherever it was. And suddenly, 50,000 OU fans stand up and boo. Not because he was throwing the horns, not because he was wearing a, a, a Texas jersey, simply because the man was born in Texas like millions and millions of other people. It was just an unpopular thing in that environment to say that he was born in Texas among at least half of those in attendance. And in the same way, they felt like if Jesus came out and said, pay the tax, that at least half, if not well more, of those in attendance at the temple that day, Jewish nationalists, would start booing Jesus, and he would be discredited in some way. So you see the, the thorny issue. They thought, well, we've, we've come up with a way to discredit him, and this is how we're going to do it. So they come and they're going to ask this question. Now, how do they ask it? I think it's hilarious how they ask it. It says that they, they sent the, the disciples of the Pharisees to go ask it. Now, some have looked at this and have thought, okay, the Pharisees had been so shown up by Jesus so many times, they did not want to be publicly embarrassed by him again, so they sent the interns. Now, it's possible that that's what happened, but I don't think it's probable. I think what happened was they sent the interns because they thought that Jesus wouldn't recognize the interns as being connected with the Pharisees. So they they send these interns off with the Herodians, because who would have ever thought that the Herodians and the Pharisees would join forces to go ask this question in a very public setting of Jesus? And they they ask it in even more of a Trojan horse. They begin to butter him up. Oh, Jesus, you're the best. You're true and truthful and true. I mean, how many times do they say true in there, right? They're really trying to throw him off his game. But what's fascinating is Jesus is not thrown off his game at all, right? He's the sovereign son of God. He knows all. He knows what's in their hearts. He perceives their deception. That's why he calls them a hypocrite, someone who was intentionally trying to deceive. But they came and asked the question about paying taxes. Now, here's the question for us. Do we ever ask that question? Do we ever ask the question, should I pay taxes? Well, I think we ask it a lot, and I think we ask it in a lot of different ways. We might ask that question this way. Do I really have to refrain from drinking alcohol if I'm not 21 years old? I mean, that seems like an arbitrary standard. I mean, I'm at college. I've could serve in the United States Armed Forces, yet I can't get a drink? We may ask that question a different way. Do I really have to drive the speed limit? Hey, everybody who thought they were off the hook because they're over 21, now we're back on it. I mentioned this at the first service. Uh, this, is, this is in full disclosure. This is a statement that I am making as someone who has been pulled over for speeding by an officer who is serving right now in the gathering hall. I say that not to my credit, but to my shame. Um, I really do. But I, do we ever ask the question, do I really need to drive the speed limit? After all, I'm busy. I've got places to go. Do we ever ask the question, do I really need to pay these taxes, or can I fudge these numbers just a little bit because I think I could handle this money a little better than the state or the feds? See, what happens is we have these questions that we ask, and then we end up asking those questions of our favorite political radio host, or we ask those questions of our friends who might tell us what we want to hear, but what if we ask Jesus that question? 
What would Jesus say, WWJS, on this issue? Well, friends, we get the answer right here. It's not, it's not a hypothetical situation. The question was really asked of him. What do we do, Jesus? Do we really obey these laws in this world in which we live? Well, Jesus answers, and he answers it in two different ways, a two-faceted answer that I want us to look at today. The first part of that answer that, that Jesus gives is this. Should we pay our taxes? He says, yes. Present back to government as they have given to you. He responds and he, he answers in that way. Now, the way that he does that, I think it's just, a, it's just beautiful. It, it's a wonderful um, teaching moment that, that Jesus does here. And now, he does not need my affirmation of this. He's the son of God, right? But it, I, just, I just marvel at it when I look at what he did. Because what he does, he says, okay, um, you're asking me about tax. Uh, now go get the coin that you used to pay that tax. And that coin, of course, was a Roman denarius. It's equivalent to about one day's working wage for a soldier or a, a laborer. Not a terribly expensive tax, but he says, go get the coin that you used to pay that tax. And so they go and they get this denarius. Now, this denarius, it looks like this. This is actually a first century denarius that you see on the screen there. Um, and this, this coin has a very prominent face on it. And Jesus asks a very obvious question. Hey, whose face is that on the coin? Is that, is that King David's face on that coin? Is that, is that Daniel like hanging out with a couple of lions from the lion's den? Is, is that what's on there? Is it a picture of the temple? Is it a, a representation of the menorah of symbol of the nation of Israel? I mean, what, what do you see on that coin? Just tell me. Jesus just asked this. Now, again, some have looked at this and said Jesus asked for the denarius because he didn't have a denarius himself to pay it. I don't think that's what's going on. This is not a statement of Jesus' poverty. This is the brilliant teaching technique of the Savior. He says, hey, bring me that coin and let's look at it. That coin that's in your pocket that you like to spend on other things, you're fine spending it on it. I want you to take it out and want you to look at it for a second and tell me whose face you see upon it. Now, when they look at that, and they're honest, the, the Pharisees hated that because that coin was a reminder that they were under Gentile rule. That was Gentile money, and they didn't like that. Remember, they were separatists. And Jesus has them look at it and say, whose face is on it? Well, they give the answer that they could only give, the only truthful answer they could give. It's Caesar's face that's on there. That picture on the left there, that is Caesar Tiberius, who was the leader of the Roman Empire at that time. They said, that's Caesar's face on there. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. That's Caesar's face. Now, what was Jesus saying as he had them walk through this exercise? Jesus was reminding them. He was saying, I, I know you don't like it that you're under Gentile rule, but guess what? You're under Gentile rule. The very coin in your pocket is giving testimony of the land in which you live. And, and that moment and that reminder would, would serve to be something that would influence Christian thinking about government in the days ahead. 
a number of different New Testament writers. We're going to look at some of their observations that they make. But the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, verse 1, he says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is a chapter about government. Paul, by the time he writes the Romans, understands what Jesus was communicating here. In this world, there are times and there are moments where we are going to live under government rule that we don't like. But guess what? It's still something that God has allowed for a purpose. They didn't like the fact that they were under Roman rule. But guess what? They benefited in many ways by being under Roman rule. God God was doing some things through this. Think of some of the things that they got to take advantage of because they were in the Roman Empire. One of the things that they got to take advantage of was the roads. The Romans built a a network of roads to connect different areas so that trade could happen from place to place and travel could happen. Not only did they build those roads, but they also brought peace. Up to that time, there were all these little kingdoms that isolated each group of people. But when the Romans established their empire, suddenly you could travel from Jerusalem to Rome because it was all under Roman jurisdiction, traveling on those roads. Not only that, but they they brought things like uh, engineering, aqueducts that would deliver water to heavily populated areas so that cities could grow, and a common language and culture and currency that would allow people to interact with those in different areas. There was some common grace of God that had been extended to people because they were under Roman Rule. Now, before we move on, I just want us to look at this list for a second and just marvel for a moment at what God had established in the first century to make it possible for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Suddenly, there were roads that people could travel. There was peace so they could travel without an army. There was engineering so that people could live in cities in greater numbers so that the gospel could arrive in those cities. There was a common culture and language, including Koine Greek, so that we could have the New Testament and it could be read by people in different areas of the world. Friends, God had established many things through Rome. And Jesus just makes the declaration, hey, you know that coin that represents that you're under Roman rule? I want you to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, those are all the good things about Rome. Let's take just a moment and think about the not-so-good things about Rome. Because there are some of you out there who have taken a class at OU, and you're going, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, Rome, not so perfect. Yeah, they were a mess. There were a lot of challenges in Rome as well. And you need to look no further than the coin they were looking at to see that. You see the picture of Caesar Tiberius, but do you know what? the inscription said around it, Caesar Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. That's right. That coin that Jesus had them look at said that Caesar Tiberius was the son of God. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus, the only one who could rightly bear that title, has them look at a coin that mistakenly identifies someone else, the leader of a pagan government, as the son of God. It reminds us that governments in this world, even broken ones, God can use. Even ones that are so messed up that they can't even determine a man from God, God can use. 
And so Jesus instructs them to, to pay the tax. Now, what does it look like for us to apply some of those principles? I want to quickly cover some of the different ways that uh, we as followers of Christ apply this and live out our response as good citizens in this world. The first one of those responses I want us to think about is the one that's mentioned right there in Matthew 22. It's also mentioned in Romans chapter 13. That is that we would pay our taxes. Part of our understanding of this is that we would pay the taxes that we are charged. Second thing that we think about in terms of our response is not just that we pay our taxes, but also that we pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 Paul writes and says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Friends, we're called to pray for our government leaders. We did that earlier in the service, but we often forget that, don't we? We want to criticize. But are we praying for them? It's part of the response of the followers of Jesus. But not only are we to pay our taxes, and not only are we to pray for our leaders, but we're also to obey the law. Obey the law. We see this in Romans 13. We read verse 1 earlier, so I'll pick it up in verse 2. He says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Friends, we're called to be obedient to the laws of the land in which we live. Part of how we respond in light of this truth. It's part of how we pay our taxes, if you will. But a fourth idea beyond just paying and praying and obeying is that we would respect, and I think this is one of the hardest of the bunch. First Peter chapter 2, verse 17, Peter, in talking about government, says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Honor Caesar, is what Peter says. Measure of respect extended to them. Friends, this is how we as followers of Christ are, are called to respond in the world in which we live, which is led by broken, fallible government. Because God, in his sovereignty, has established different leaders. Jesus responds, and his first answer says that we are to present back to the government as they have given to us. But his answer didn't stop there. If his answer had stopped there, then, then we might guess that, that really Jesus was siding with who? The Herodians. In other words, if Jesus had not kept moving, um, the Herodians might have gone, sweet. You know, we've got him on our team. We've got him on our side. But Jesus just keeps right on going. After telling them that they are to give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, the very next thing he says, barely taking a breath in between, he says what? Give to God the things 
that are God's. And in that, Jesus gives the second answer here. He says that we are to present back to God what he has given to us. Now, in order for us to really appreciate what Jesus was saying here, we need to understand something about the worldview and mindset of the first century. The worldview and mindset of the first century was, was one that people paid taxes to their God. Now, this is not the world in which we live, but it really was the world in which they lived. So when you think about Israel in the old times, they were a theocracy. God was at the top. Their constitution was the book of Deuteronomy, okay? So when, when they thought of paying taxes their taxes were paid to their God. They called them tithes. They were, they were tenths of things that they would give to the government. They would give to the temple. They would give for the military defense of their country and the provision of the government. That was what they understood. They, they paid taxes to their God. And this was not something, that, incidentally, that was unique just to, the, uh, just to the, the Jewish people, but it was something that you found even in the pagan world, even in Rome. Augustus Caesar thought that he was a... God. Tiberius Caesar thought that he was a God. And they were not the lone God. They believed there were many gods. And so they built temples to Jupiter and things with tax dollars and all this kind of stuff because they thought it would help them in their military conquests and battles. There was very much a connection between church and state. But what happens in Jesus' answer is he, he says, if that's the way you conceived of it in the past that these two things were connected, Jesus says, let me show you that they, there is a difference. You can pay tax to someone who is not your God. That was a revolutionary thought to them. Look on the coin. Whose picture is there? Well, that's Caesar's. And Jesus says, okay, Caesar has a limited amount of responsibility, including that piece of money, so I want you to give that money back to Caesar as he is requested. But, Jesus says, there is someone who has a sovereignty that goes well beyond that, and that is God himself. And so Jesus says, I want you to render unto God the things that are God's. Now, if Caesar's image was on the coin, friends, where is the image of God? I saw Brendan pointing at himself. Thank you, Brendan. I appreciate that. It's in us. We are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. What Jesus was saying was, take the coin and pay the tax. Be respectful citizens in this secular world in which you live, but do not worship that government. Save your ultimate allegiance, your honor, your respect, and your worship, not for the government, but for God. It's possible to pay the tax, but to worship Jesus. That was his point. Now, this is an idea that is super important for us to reflect on and think about, because we are often pressured on this idea of, of the government. And one of the, uh, the examples of this that I might give is, has, has to do with how we determine what truth is and what right and wrong is. See, if, if government is our God, then if government passes laws that says that something is, is legal, then we want to say that it is right. But what Jesus was saying was, he says, there is an authority that sits above 
the government. So something can be legal and be wrong. Something can be illegal and be right. Our definitions of right and wrong are not established by the Supreme Court. They're not established by the United States government. They're not established by our Congress. And in, and in other countries, it's not established by the, the leadership of China or of India that have outlawed practices of Christianity or conversion in, in Muslim countries. Th- those things, that's not right and wrong is not established there. The legality is. See, if we see this distinction, then then we look to God to determine our morality. We look to God to determine our right and wrong. We look to God for our ultimate allegiance to follow him no matter what and, and where it is, is mostly possible for us to live in submission under the leadership of local government. D.A. Carson says this. I think it's a, a wonderful statement. He says, when Caesar claims what is God's, the claims of God have priority. Friends, we are not to worship the government. We're not to find our ultimate hope there. We're to find our ultimate hope in the one that we worship, and that is Jesus Christ. Friends, as we gather here today, may we hear these words, and may we be good citizens while at the same time worshiping and following Christ. Sadly, this passage ends in verse 22 with this admission. When the interns of the Pharisees and the Herodians heard Jesus answer, it said they marveled at him. It's as if they look at him and they say, great job, Jesus. Good answer. I never even thought of that. That's amazing. But then what do they do? They left and they walked away. Friends, this is a great reminder and picture of of our lives and our response to the truth of the gospel. May we never be people who come to a Bible study or pick up the scripture and read it or go and listen to a message and be confronted with the word of God. May we never be those who hear the word of God presented and laid out before us and go, wow, that was interesting. Jesus, that's amazing. You're really great. But then walk away and live our own life. May the beauty and the power of Christ that we see in Scripture draw our hearts not to give him a thumbs up and walk away, but to follow him for all of our days. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given us to look at your word today and be challenged, Father, as we live in this election year where there's a lot of conversation and arguing around things of politics. May we not be people who see in government our God. May we be a people who worship and ultimately follow you as our authority and as our Lord and as our Savior. Father, may we be a people that when we see the power of the truth in Scripture, that we don't just say, well, that was interesting and walk away, but that we would follow you all of our days. We thank you. We pray that you would guide us and give us the faith to follow now. In Jesus' name, amen.